0: Luke 22, verses 39 to verse 62 is what we're looking at today. If you're able, I invite you to stand one more time with me for the reading of God's Word, to honor His Word. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and His disciples followed Him. On reaching the place, He said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. The servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. "'Woman, I don't know him,' he said. "'A little later, someone else saw him and said, "'You also are one of them. "'Man, I am not,' Peter replied. "'About an hour later, another asserted, "'Certainly this fellow was with him, "'for he is a Galilean.' "'Peter replied, "'Man, I don't know what you're talking about.' "'Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. "'The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. "'Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, "'had spoken to him. "'Before the rooster crows today, "'you will disown me three times.' And he went outside and wept bitterly. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. Sometimes in the church, when we talk about salvation, which we have sung about a lot today, we've heard it expressed in the songs that we've, that we've sung, but also the scripture that was read. When we talk about salvation, how do we receive that salvation? Or in other words, let me ask it a different way. How has that salvation come to us? Who purchased that salvation? Make it a little easier for you, okay? Jesus. All right? Now, as First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 says, You and I have salvation today because of two things the text highlights there. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. Somebody turn there. Give me the answer. How do you and I have that salvation? First Thessalonians 4.14 Who of you is quick in your Bible? Who knows your Bible? I'll wait for somebody to turn there. First Thessalonians 4.14 <laughs> Okay. I'll give you time for your glasses. Yes. That very first phrase there. Say it again and rose again, right? Those are the two big elements that we typically think about when we think about salvation. I mean, true or not true? We believe that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, Easter Sunday, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, right? And that is true. That is how we have salvation. But have you ever thought about it like this? You and I have salvation today if you are Christian because of the life that Jesus lived. Jesus lived the life we should have lived died the death we should have died and then rose from the dead so that we can rise at the end of time. For example, John chapter 6 verse 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus came not to do his own will but to do the will of the Father. And what is the Father's will? We read about it today in Philippians 2, but also in Hebrews chapter 10 if you want to Look at that in your own time later. Part of the Father's will was for Jesus to die on the cross, but also part of the Father's will is for Jesus to live and to walk in the path of obedience. We may not think about that a lot in our um, context, but it stated like this. The Father sent the Son into the world to faithfully live the life that we should have lived, one step at a time, to live perfectly the will of God, to perfectly live out the will of God. And in today's world, when you talk about or mention or hear somebody talking about the will of God, I think it's usually in reference to, you know, I want to know what God's will is for my life. I think we've all expressed that at one point or another. But honestly, when you say that, do you realize how weighty that statement is? Because God's will for your life is rarely, rarely easy. So do you really want to know what God's will is for your life? Do you really want to follow him in that will? Do you really want to obey his will for your life? Because in the text, Jesus of all people knows that following the Lord is not a walk in the park. It is a very hard, dangerous road. That Jesus was called to walk and that likewise we are called to walk as well. As we are called to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. So, in the text, what we are, where we are at on, in the week of Passion Week, this is Maundy Thursday, the evening, the night before, right before the events of Good Friday that would unfold. And what we see in the text, verses 39 to 62, is Jesus facing greater darkness, greater pain, and greater heartache than any human being ever has faced or will face. And Jesus in particular, right around the corner is the crucifixion. It's the cross. And it's not as though Jesus is terrified by the physical torture that he would experience, although that is a component of it. What Jesus fears and what petrifies him as we see him praying in the garden, as it's just plaguing his physical body, what Jesus is petrified with is the unrestrained wrath of God being poured out on him or about to be poured out on him. And as Jesus inches closer to that moment on the cross, what we see in the text today is Jesus faithfully obeying and faithfully pursuing the Father's will. So in the text, what we see is Jesus faithfully and obediently pursuing the Father's will and doing so in three ways number one, on bended knee in prayer, number two, without a sword of his own accord. And then number three, with the foreknowledge of what's to come. So firstly, on bended knee in prayer, verses 39 to 46. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. Now, the Mount of Olives is a two and a half mile long stretch of a mountain ridge that towers over the city of Jerusalem. When we think about a mount or mountain today, I think of Mount McKinley or Mount Everest, just this sharp peak when we see the Mount of Olives here, again, it's think about a ridge. Think about a big ridge line, kind of what's behind us, the blue ridge mountains uh, If you don't mind going to the next slide, there's one so this is a very famous photo. if you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem before, but this is this picture is taken on the Mount of Olives, and it's not necessarily at this precise spot, but here, along this ridge, this is where Jesus rode down da- or stopped first looked over into the city of Jerusalem and wept over it. If you recall, when Jesus walked, uh, rode in on the donkey uh, on uh, Palm Sunday. So Jesus looked over the city on the Mount of Olives. Jesus rode down into the city from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is also significant because uh, the Olivet Discourse, if you remember Jesus talking about the temple being destroyed in the end times, he preached that on the Mount of Olives. But also the village of Bethany that might ring a bell for you. That's where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, some of Jesus' closest friends, that's where they lived. It was on the Mount of Olives. And then lastly, Luke chapter 24, which we'll get to in a couple, few weeks. But this is where Jesus ascended back into heaven physically. So Mount of Olives is quite a significant location. So Jesus, as he traveled, as he was near Jerusalem. It's evident from the text this was a favorite spot of his because the text says Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Luke 21 verse 37 tells us, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. This is a place, a frequent favorite place, that Jesus would go to escape from the busyness of the world and commune and spend time with his Father So here the text also says the disciples followed him. Jesus takes the 11 with him because, remember, Judas Iscariot had left, departed from the meal, as we saw in the previous passage. So it's just the 11 now with him. And he instructs them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Stay awake, as Matthew and Mark also uh, record. Verse 41, Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Now take note of what Jesus says in his prayer. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now Matthew records that Jesus prayed that prayer at least three different times. And first of all, we have to ask, what is this cup that Jesus is referring to? We don't use that language today. Nobody, I doubt any of you have ever prayed that prayer. Take this cup from me. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup is typically associated with God's wrath. And if nations, so here's the thing though in the Old Testament. So nations and people are given two options. Choose life, choose death. Walk in the path of obedience, walk in the path of rebellion. You can taste and receive my living water that I give you or you can drink from the cup of wrath. It is your choice. You choose. So in Isaiah 51 verse 17 we see that the nation of Israel because of their wickedness because they had refused to come to the Lord for the living water it says Isaiah 51 verse 17 the Israelites drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Ezekiel 23 verse 33 refers to this as "the cup of ruin and desolation." and Psalm 75 verses seven to eight records, "It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. And the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs." So what's going on here in Luke chapter 22? One pastor records that, or notes, here on the Mount of Olives, Jesus begins to taste what is in this cup, unmingled and undiluted by God's mercy. He begins to experience what will be required of him on the cross if he is to save his people. And again, what torments his soul is the thought, the notion of God's unrestrained wrath All the fury, all the anger, all the rage that God has against sin. And why is God angry at sin? Because sin corrupts and destroys his beloved, his people. And God hates sin because he loves his people so much. So all the hatred against sin, Jesus would soon experience all of that in his body on the cross. And because of this overwhelming weight, Jesus, the text says, was in anguish. Matthew 26, verses 37 to 38 records, Jesus began to be sorrowful. Some versions say he was deeply distressed and troubled. Then Jesus said to them, to the eleven, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's hard to really empathize with what Jesus is going through because no human being has ever come close to facing the wrath of God like this. And the thing about it is, remember, Jesus is perfect. He in no way deserved any of it, but he received it nonetheless. With this gruesome weight upon his shoulders, the text tells us in verse 41, he knelt down and prayed. The typical Jewish posture to pray when they did pray was to look up to heaven and to stand as a sign of reverence. But one commentator notes the burden of this prayer, of his prayer, was so heavy, it bore down on him so much that he sank to his knees to pray. What did he pray? Please take this cup from me, Father, if you are willing. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Please find another way. There has to be another way. There is an element to what Jesus is saying here, communicating, I don't want to go through with this. Mark 14, verse 36. Abba, Father. Listen to it's slightly different there. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. You could take this cup from me. There has to be. You, there has to be some other option, some other uh, substitute. Think about the context of Abraham when he was called to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. There had to be some resistance. Lord, I know you've called me to do this, but there has to maybe, maybe Jesus is thinking in his mind. Maybe there's something else, a, a, a lamb or a goat that'll come in last minute, so I don't have to go down this path. But then we find some of the most powerful, humble words to ever come out of Jesus' mouth. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And this is echoing and reminiscent of what Jesus said in John six thirty eight. I've not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And I've heard it explained like this before. You know, each and every one of us, we have desires in our hearts. And here, it's not as though Jesus' will, Jesus' heart is out of sync with the Father. Because remember, Jesus is God. The Father is God. They do have one will, one mind, one heart. But here, like many of you, for, for example, let's say if you wanted to, say you, you want to serve your spouse, and you want to wash this dishes. Okay, so part of you wants to wash dishes to serve your spouse, but the other side of you, there's also part of you. Maybe I'm just describing myself. All right, part of you wants to sit on the couch, all right, and just chill. It's been a long day. You fill in the blank. Those are two desires. They're somewhat conflicting. But isn't there one desire that's greater, that's stronger? And by that I mean the desire to love my wife. Right? That's, that's a stronger desire. And we all face this. We all know this. We love the Lord, but at the same time, we still somewhat desire to sin at times. But there is a greater desire, a stronger desire, a more abiding, permanent, lasting, meaningful desire. And that is the desire to obey God to serve God, to follow God. And Jesus here, he's not tempted to sin, all right? But Jesus nonetheless falls back on and leans on his greater desire to follow the Lord, to follow the Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. So in the garden here, what we see is Jesus' humanity and his humility on full display And as you know, as we see in the text, as we're going to unpack the next couple weeks, the path that Jesus has been called to walk on is a very difficult path. And for Jesus to take another step in this path of obedience, he drops to his knees in prayer. And you notice in the text, it's an interesting verse, verse 43. The Father gives him just enough strength to keep going. Just enough strength to take one step more step. As verse 43 says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And hear me right, this text is overwhelmingly about Jesus, about how he is faithful, about how he is good, how he remained true to the path of obedience. But it is instructive for you and I, because when you and I face the hard path of obedience, when we find it difficult to to proceed, to follow one more step, to obey the Lord, the strength that you and I need can only be found on our knees in prayer before the Father, in humility. And Jesus exemplified that. But then the second way in which Jesus obeys the Father's will is with, without a sword and of his own accord. Verses 47 to verse 53. So while Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Now, we have to try to picture the scene of what's going on. This isn't as though people are just Jesus and the disciples are standing, they're calm, everything's kind of chill. The other crowd is, is silent and they just come quietly marching along. Now there's got to be some ruckus amongst these people because they are hell-bent on seizing and carrying away this Messiah, self-described Messiah, right? Jesus Christ. So they are coming, they have animosity, they are, have intention to use brute force to restrain him, to take him, as Jesus says in verse 52, alludes to, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? So the, the mob that has come to take Jesus away came with swords and clubs. I mean, how would you feel, right, if somebody came and approached you with a sword, they had the anger in their eyes, or a gun or something, right? It's not a calm environment. It's very, very tense. So, disciples are there, the eleven, watching and observing all that's happening. And then, as Judas gets close, does that kiss of betrayal, which a kiss back then today, it communicates affection, it communicates closeness, that's why it's betrayal, it's not a, just a handshake, it's something deeper than that. But as, as Judas does this, and as the, the mob gets closer to Jesus, <clears throat> the disciples retaliate. This is what we like to call self-defense, and they use physical violent retaliation. And keep in mind, the disciples are not initiating this fight. They're merely responding to the threat of violence against them, against Jesus. The disciples love their master. So part of this is slightly good, right? They're angry against them doing harm to Jesus, but and, and the other thing I, I kind of think about, if you've ever seen the TV show The Chosen, kind of interesting, but the disciples kind of act like bodyguards for Jesus sometimes. And you see that some in the text as well. There could be some merit to that, that as Jesus navigated massive swarms of people, the disciples stayed close to him, said, hey, hey, keep your distance, give him a little breathing room, all right, just just settle down. You uh, we know we, we've got to go, we've got places to go. So they kind of served as his bodyguards. So here in the garden, the disciples are not just going to stand and watch. Oh, and just kind of observe everything that's unfolding. No, they want to act. and They act with violence. Verse 49, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And Jesus does not respond there. You, you'd think somebody was uttering that. And then the, perhaps right in the middle of when they were uttering that, we know from the Gospel of John that it was Peter that struck the, high servant, uh, the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. But then what does Jesus do? He gives a verbal rebuke and a physical recompense or healing. He says no more of this. And Jesus, and look at the text, verse 51, he touched the man's ear and healed him. The final moments of Jesus' life, this is the last miracle that's recorded that Jesus did before the resurrection. And the last miracle is of Jesus healing his enemy. This is foreshadowing what Jesus would soon say on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You can even see the heart, the love, the beauty, the patience of Jesus' of Jesus's own heart here in, the, in these few verses. And what does, that, what does that mean for us today, right? Well, it's this. Remember, Jesus is a sovereign authority. He is the king. He has all the power in the universe. And he does not advance his cause with violence. He does not trump over his enemies with violence, with force here. Because Jesus came firstly as a lamb in humility. We know the second time he comes, he's coming as a lion to make all things right. But firstly, he comes as a lamb. Humble, gentle, gentle. And lowly, Jesus uses his power to serve and accomplish the will of the Father. But also here, we see that Jesus lays down his life or goes with him of his own accord. John chapter 10, verse, 19, for verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. This is crucial in understanding and interpreting the Gospels. Jesus is not a mere helpless victim where the world is coming in on him. No, Jesus is sovereignly in control through this darkness. This is so important to remember because Jesus willingly turns himself in, willingly submits himself to the powers at be, to the darkness, as verse 53 says, to the darkness around him. When darkness will reign, will it have its moment. So Jesus obeys the Father's will without a sword and of his own accord. But then lastly, verses 54 to 62, Jesus obeys the Father's will with the foreknowledge of what's to come. Now this passage famously or infamously records Peter disowning or denying Jesus three times. I don't want to repaint the picture of Peter's denial. I did that a couple of weeks ago. But to keep it simple, when you today, when you go through a trial of any kind, whatever it might be, having a close friend by your side helps. It helps alleviate the pain. It doesn't absolve the pain. It doesn't make it completely 100%, everything's okay. But you have to testify today that having a friend by your side or a family member, somebody you love, somebody who loves you by your side, it helps through the trial. Amen to that, church? The same is true with Jesus, right? In his darkest moment, perhaps his closest friend, his closest leader, his closest partner, his closest brother in the faith being Peter. He did not show up. It's not just that he didn't show up. He, didn't, he just ghosted him. No, Jesus, or Peter actively denied him. Actively betrayed him. And as verse 61 says, I, this is what I want to point out from this passage. After Peter had denied him three times, the text says, Peter remembered the word of the Lord that he had spoken to him. For the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And rewind a little bit back to the Last Supper. Jesus prophesied or predicted what was going to happen. It's not as though Jesus was taking a shot in the dark. Jesus knew what was going to happen. That's why he said it. But even though Jesus knew his close, perhaps his closest friend was going to betray him, Jesus kept faithfully obeying the will of the Father. And you see, today, in, in our context, We know, we have knowledge of what's to come. Jesus has told us, Scripture is quite clear, that the path of obedience is hard. That if you want to follow the Lord, you will face trials, you will face temptation, you will face difficulty. We know that there is hardship around the corner. Jesus knew that much more than us. He knew the particulars. But even knowing that, he still faithfully pursued the will of the Father one step at a time. In church today, if you are a Christian, today you and I can experience healing, hope, salvation, peace, joy, because of Jesus' life, because of his death, because of His resurrection. Jesus said in John 6:38, "I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me." What is the will of the Father for Jesus? Verses 39 and following in John chapter 6. The Father's will for Jesus is this. That Jesus would raise up his people at the last day. What is God's will for Jesus? The Father's will is that Jesus would securely hold on to his people. The Father's will for Jesus is that people would look up to Jesus to believe in him and have eternal life through him. But here's the key. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. For Jesus to raise up his people, Jesus must first be lowered into the realm of darkness so that he could pull us out of it. For Jesus to hold on securely to us, which we sang about, he will hold me fast. For Jesus to hold on securely to us, he must first experience what it feels like to be let go from the secure loving hand of the Father. And for people to receive eternal life by believing in him, Jesus must first experience eternal death in his body on the cross. In church today, we can thank God, we can thank our Father, that we serve a Savior who did not back down, who did not give up, but who kept obeying and who kept fulfilling the Father's plan one step at a time. This is the Savior that you and I serve. Let us rejoice and be glad in him. Will you join me in a word of prayer and then we'll close with the doxology. Our Father, may your kingdom come. Jesus, may we delight in your love. And Holy Spirit, may we stand upon the truth of your word all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen.